I'm gonna say I'm gonna say something to to people. So we're gonna create three private entities that are unaccountable to anybody, and we're gonna give them the power <laughs> to have complete access and surveillance to your entire financial life, and they're gonna get to decide and determine how you're able to participate in the con- I'm guessing if I just said that, people were like, what kind of communist, socialist, <laughs> fascist craziness are you talking about? But that is our credit reporting system. We are giving people with no accountability complete access to our financial lives. you both um, for joining today. Uh, like I said, I know uh, at least I've met Jeremy once and Mo, I, I just uh, am getting to, but it, but I know uh, good people know good people. So it's going to be fun. With that, let's just lead into it. And we'll start with intros. I'm Maurice VP Weeks. I, my day job is I'm the co-executive director of the Action Center on Race and the Economy. I'm based in Detroit. I'm Jeremy Greer. I'm co-founder and co-executive director of Liberation Intergeneration, um, and I'm based in uh, Washington, D.C. area, the DMV. There it is. Welcome. Welcome, Jeremy. Welcome, Maurice. So we're going to get into it today. On, on this podcast, uh, we're really going to dive into uh, some historical markers around um, you know, the financial systems, uh, credit scores, uh, the events of today and how they impact uh, all of us today. Um, and just start to connect some dots for people that might be unaware of some of these topics and uh, have a little fun with it as well. So uh, so thanks for joining, uh, both of you. In your work and the things that you're seeing today and the events of, of what's happening today, you know, Maurice, why don't you, why don't you start and, and kind of, you know, walk me through the work that you're, you're doing and how that relates. I mean, I've, I've been trying to explain what an organizer and campaigner is to people for years and unfortunately I haven't gotten too too much better at it um, but I'll, I'll give it a shot so basically uh, what acre does is we're a, a campaigns hub and um, we're entirely structured around this idea of um, the ways in which our economy is controlled by um, a couple of really major uh, entities and fields like finance and tech and how the main goals of those uh, those industries is really to extract money, as much money as possible, from uh, black, brown, indigenous folks uh, in our country. And so what we do is we help organizations through research or campaign strategy who are running campaigns to really challenge that power um, and to try and sort of reverse, you know, turn the ship a little bit uh, and create better outcomes for, for those groups of people. We're on a day-to-day basis talking about the sort of systemic things in our economy that, uh, that are set up to appear as if they're entirely neutral, um, but instead are tools to keep, uh, you know, those groups that I was talking about, Black and Indigenous and uh, other people of color, tools to keep them sort of at the bottom of the economy. Um, so that's kind of how it connects to all the all the things. For that sure, we're for about sure. Here. And, and I'll, I'll reference. Uh, there's a really good article in Time Magazine um, about the history of our credit system in this country, 
And I'll pull out a couple of interesting things and I'll let you all walk through it. Again, let's just start with what is credit for everybody here listening. Um, I think people have a general idea, but it's, 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 a, it's a black box and it's arguably maybe a black box on purpose. It's based on the FICO score, which is set up in 1989, which that was originally a company called Fair Isaac and Company. And, and we'll dive a little bit into that a little bit later. Uh, but your credit score is based um, on consumer credit files from three uh, national reporting bureaus, and that's Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. Many of us know that. And the score, how your score is, is created, um, is based on uh, five major factors. 30% is uh, based on the amount owed in your history. 10% of your score is based on new credit. 15% of your score is based on your credit history. 10% is based on credit mix. And 35%, so the largest amount is based on your credit history as well. Sorry. So so um, that piece of it was the, is the largest piece of it. And, and, and that it adds in a bunch of personal information. And, and that's the part, Maurice and Jeremy, I think you all will probably dive into a lot. So the fact that it has its roots and its history in creating a profile of a person, and some of those things are quantifiable, which we all can agree might be good. You know, hey, it modernizes how capital moves in this country and in the world, and it gives everybody a baseline. But when you dig into it and the amount of personal information and subjective information that also goes into that, that's where you get these biases. That's where I think you all come in with the work you're doing. And, and I, I want to dive before I jump into Jeremy real quick. I'll give I'll give the audience a little bit more. We'll have a the breakout segment here shortly. Um, but the, the Fair Credit Reporting Act was set up in 1970. And, and that allows you to see to how these credit agencies are reporting and what's in it was really a lot of that is credited to a professor out of Columbia University named Alan Weston. And Alan Weston um, at that time was saying, look, there's so many subjective things here uh, that include uh, things like marital troubles, school history, sex life, political activity, right? And race and socioeconomic class. So, so if we can't see what's in our credit score, we need to solve this problem. This is a problem. And this came out of a professor in 1970. He, he published some of these things in the New York Times that year. And then he took it to congressional testimony in the same year. And, and lo and behold, once that got pushed, we get the Fair Credit Reporting Act in the same year. And Equifax, which is now the largest uh, one of the three, uh, changed its name um, after the Fair Credit Reporting Act a few years later to kind of rebrand itself. And we'll go into that history later. But, Jeremy, I want to pull you in and saying, given really the topic is around these subjective factors of, of creating this profile and how that then allows you to do things in life like, you know, get an apartment, get a home, get a car, where you live, where you work what your future is, you know, talk a little bit more uh, for the audience about the work that you do for Lib at liberation for a generation and, and, and how you've kind of uh, talked about some of these topics in the past. Yeah, no, thanks for um, that, Adrian. And thanks for uh, that background in history. Cause I think it's important for your listeners to understand that history in order to kind of consume the conversation that we're going to have. Um, as far as liberation generation, uh, we call ourselves a movement support organization. And really what our role is, is to support 
grassroots organizers so that they can build the power and the policies that are going to um, make the economy work for people of color. And that's really the kind of work that we do because we believe that there's big structural change has to be made on a whole host of things from labor policy, the housing policy to um, criminal um, justice reform and all of that in addition. And of course, this conversation we're going to have about credit. In order to understand the credit score, you have to understand the role that credit plays in our economic system. And what, what I always think of things through a policy lens. So I'm going to talk about it in a policy lens. And credit has been used as a mechanism to do two things. One, to create opportunity for segments of the population that the government or that the financial markets want to create opportunity for. And I'll say, on the other hand, it's been used as an instrument of social control to really um, oppress people of color, particularly Black people in our economy. And an example of how that's played out in our history, you can look at the GI Bill and what was happening during that period of time. So we had all these GIs coming home from World War II, the 1940s, and then we also have these expanding suburbs happening around our countries. We built an interstate highway system, and the government said, we've got all this land and we've got all these people that need homes. We're going to create these low-interest loans for people to purchase homes with a mortgage. So the, and still exists today, the, you know, the VA loan was created, and this, these loans went out across the country. At the same time, the federal government was redlining communities and redlining was a practice where they basically put red lines around black and brown neighborhoods and told banks, you are not to make loans in these communities. You are not to make a mortgage loan, a small business loan, even small dollar credit in these communities. But what replaced it was predatory credit that was actually designed to strip the wealth from black and brown communities. So we've kind of always had this dual financial system in our society where there's opportunity provided largely to white middle-class households and predatory wealth extracting credit provided to black and brown households. So how does that play in the credit score? And you just mentioned them. The biggest two elements of credit are your credit history, and the amount of credit that you have. Yeah. And our, our financial market looks the same. If you are a Black person in this society and all you have access to is predatory credit that just explodes and builds upon itself and you're never able to pay it down, or you have a credit history with the types of loans that the credit market says are, is bad credit, your score is not going to be very good you're not going to have a good credit score. And we see the disproportionate scores in black and brown communities. So just, so yes, are there biases and kind of racial biases in the credit score and things like that? And people have focused on it, but there's actually structural inequality in the credit score that makes it so that black and brown people are going to have lower credit scores than white households. I got you. I got you. And I'll, I'll play devil's advocate a little bit. I'm going to play the opposition side. And saying, man, Jeremy, that sounds like a lot of opinion. I mean, you gave me some facts there with, with the GI Bill. I'll look into that. We'll see what that looks like. Um, but I don't know if I really believe you. And, I, and I'll stop there and then I'll turn back on the head and say, let's dive back into some history real quick. And, I, and I'll let you guys comment on that. And you mentioned redlining. 
you know, in that, Jeremy. And it's really interesting because the term redlining was used in, in, in the research around that we were doing for this podcast for credit score. And they kind of said credit score was the earliest form of redlining in this country. But I, I want to dive into the earliest mechanisms in this country that we first see around credit. Okay. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go off these. And if any of these catch your attention or something you want to dive into, let's, let's get into it. So really the the modern form in this country can really be traced back to about the 1820s, okay? And in the 1820s, you got to remember what's going on in this country at the time. What's the major economic factor in this country in the 1820s? It's cotton, okay? In this country, there was the Panic of 1837. It was the first time where credit to the cotton industry, an industry that dominated America and was world commerce, and, and we'll get into this. So cotton production doubled between 1830 and 1837. Then we get the breakdown of the panic of 1837, right? And that panic was because loans coming from Europe started to get shut off to American cotton industry because the production was going up, but yet they were laying off workers because of the advancements in the industrial revolution. So you're making your creditors nervous, Right. And this all goes back to trust. If I can't trust you, that's really what credit and what credit was meant to do. I can loan you money to give you capital to do things you want to do. But I got to trust you to give you that you're going to pay it back. That's really the foundation. The foundation of credit in capital market is trust. And in that panic, things get shut down and the entire we have an entire financial crisis in this country at a magnitude we hadn't seen prior um, in that way at, in 1837. It was a liquidity crisis. And out of that came the first essences of organizations, uh, one of them called the Mercantile Agency, which is going to be a fun tie fact to the day. The Mercantile Agency sets out at that time to say, we got to standardize the trust, Right. And you say that's a great innovation in America because America is kind of credited with the modernization of credit and the under and what this actually is. We're the first country to innovate that. So in some ways you say, wow, you know, like many things in America, we were innovators in that to try to figure out how capital moves and how you loan money and how you move money. But this is what happens with that. The people of the time who start to put this together come from one socioeconomic class in this country. It comes out of the 1820s of this country where slavery is the dominant economic factor in this country. And as they start to make reports to try to say, we'll standardize who people are, we're going to we're going to create the earliest versions of a profile. I mean, many people know profiles today from social media. But at the time, you know, these are one group of people making decisions for how people get money. And now listen to some of the quotes that come out of the mercantile agency from that time. This is one quote. Prudence should be given in large transactions with all Jews. Okay, so for all Jewish groups, prudence should be used. Another one is this is one of low Negro. This is a low Negro shop in reference to a a local shop in Georgia uh, that sold goods and services to their community. These are the types of languages used to quantify something in those early days. And lo and behold, there's, there's this other company that starts to come. So this is kind of a pseudoscience, right? So that pseudoscience 
These become the facts and the foundation of our credit system in this country. And lo and behold, there's another company that arises a few decades later called Bradstreet. And many of you will, will recognize that name. So in 1857, Bradstreet merges with the mercantile industry to standardize the credit reporting, right? And that now becomes Dun & Bradstreet. And for those who aren't aware, Dun & Bradstreet to this day is, again, the foundational mechanism really to do any business with the federal government um, and is a big part of the system. So I'll stop there because there's, a, again, this is loaded and it's a lot for people. But really, the, the, what I want to kind of get to, Jeremy, and what you talked about with redlining and what that means, and, and Maurice bringing you back in, knowing that that's the foundation, that's how it started. It started as a pseudoscience, and it's continued. Mm-hmm. How does that, again, affect people today, and how should people be viewing that? And I'll even bring in another thing. When it comes to the credit system saying the more information we have on people, Right. The more surveillance we have on people, the better my profile is going to be. But that could be biased. So how does that even play to the profiles and the information we give on social? And I'll let you all maybe run with that and just give me some of your thoughts there. Yeah, I feel like whenever uh, conversations like this happen, I'm usually the guy who's like, (laughs) you know, this is about slavery. Right. And everyone's like, oh, here we go. Slavery, slavery, not slavery. You know, Um, right. Exactly. Oh, God. That was so long ago. There's no way that this is about slavery. Like, why do you just keep saying that? But, like, I think that what, what you, you know, some of the facts you just pointed out just show how clear that is. So, I mean, you talked about these things that were kind of abstract pseudosciences, which we should remember that anti-Black slavery is entirely based on, <laughs> like, abstract, not real science. Um, so all these things sort of becoming not only official policy of corporations, but official government policy that is in the books. So like you can actually go back and look at from uh, the early 20th century, look at things from our housing agencies and they have some of the same restrictions written into actual law that some of these for-profit companies have. So um, you know, in order to get a federal, federally backed mortgage, you can, you have to pledge that this will never, this house will never end up in a black person's hands, etc. These are things that are not, this wasn't like some evil guy said this. It was our government saying this, right? Um, so these things are baked into our, our DNA forever. They are, are the things that sort of inform what our, what our current reality is. Um, and then, you know, when you talk about sort of the the bias that, that could, that still exists. Um, you know, if you start to, uh, base a, a system of tracking someone's ability to pay back a loan, uh, you know, on, on, on past history, um, and, you know, as a way of tracking economic stability, yet you have systematically destabilized an entire class and race of people, then of course it's going to be biased from the beginning. You'll, your, all of your algorithms, anything that you could calculate will assume that black folks, indigenous folks, other people of color would be less likely to pay back, to pay back any loans. You've, of course you, you, you had them enslaved. You wouldn't give them jobs. You wouldn't give them homes. So like, of course, of course you would, your algorithm would, would assume that. 
Um, so all these things are just sort of like built on really shady, the really shady, shaky, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, science, pseudoscience um, that is anti-black racism, I would say. Yeah, we are talking about slavery um, because our the foundations of our economy were built on an economy that used free labor to prosper and to grow. And so what we see at the time, at the same time you're talking about, human bodies were the largest asset owned by people in the United States, more than the railroads, more than manufacturing. So when you're talking about people going out there at that time looking to get credit, they were using the people that they owned as assets to back that credit. Like that is how they were... They were claiming to financial institutions at the time, I'm a good bet because I have all these assets that are people. Like that, is, that is what the foundation of our economy, and that is what it is today. So what we've replaced is the owning of people with the owning of land. That's how you demonstrate that you have assets. So when you have a mortgage loan in your credit profile, that's viewed very well by the credit reporting agency. And you make payments on that mortgage regularly, that's going to get viewed well. But you have a whole set of people who have been, and we talked about redlining, blocked from owning land in this country, blocked from owning homes. The home ownership rate for Black people is 41, 41% compared to 70% for white households. So if there's a whole set of people that don't have that as 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 a profile in their credit. So that is what is driving a lot of this inequality, the access to assets and opportunity by some and the the holding back by others. And on surveillance, like I like I'm going to say I'm going to say something to to people. So we're going to create three private entities that are unaccountable to anybody. And we're going to give them the power <laughs> to have complete access and surveillance to your entire financial life. And they're going to get to decide and determine how you're able to participate in the con- I'm guessing if I just said that, people were like, what kind of communist, socialist, <laughs> fascist craziness are you talking about? <laughs> But that is our credit report. We are giving people with no accountability complete access to our financial lives. Anytime. If you go out and try to apply for a credit card tomorrow, within seconds, the credit bureaus know that you've done that. If you go to get a cell phone, within seconds, the credit bureau knows that you've done that. And there is no accountability for how they use that data, what they do with that data. I mean, there's accountability. I'll say there's not great enforcement um, accountability that they do have. So, I mean, again, like we have created a system of surveillance that is like, again, if 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 I just said it to you and didn't just explain it, a lot of people would think, like, what is this? Like this Soviet Russia? Right, right, right. Yeah. (laughs) And and, you know, and I know people will argue with the source, even though. But I'll say this again: you you just mentioned it, Jeremy. Time magazine in this article about the history of credit, quote, called it the surveillance that rivals the NSA, which is <laughs> the national security. So it's like, you know, they have as much information on all of us as any organization in this country, including our national intelligence agencies. Now, like you said, let that sink in for a second. 
and let that sink in with the history of what it is, right? And let's, you know what, this is going to be fun. Let's dive into what it, what we could see the future being with that. So I'll, I'll give you another fun fact here. So out of those three agencies, Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion, Equifax being the largest right now, Equifax had a recent merger uh, deal with AT&T to start now getting into a new sector. So when you look at Equifax's, how many subsidiaries they own, and there's a good article, again, we'll have around the podcast. There's a personal story from a guy who talks about just, you know, trying to get a home and how he got he, he applied for life insurance a, a few weeks earlier. They knew that. They sent people to his house. They collected urine samples, blood samples for that. Um, they asked a bunch of questions. He was surprised at how much information, how many subsidiaries were sharing information to get a profile on him that he, one, didn't authorize, didn't access, and didn't even know about. So with that, with this merger with AT&T and Equifax, they're trying to get into medical records. So, so think about this expansion in the future. Yeah. It, hey, th- this is the benefit, right? And this is kind of the trade-off that it's always going to be. And I want to hear your guys' thoughts on this as it pertains to your work. It seems like there's always this trade-off of it could be used for good, but will it be used for good? And this is a case where I think many people could say, hey, man, if we had a standardized database so that no matter what doctor you went to, no matter what hospital you landed in, no matter what state you were in, if you had a medical issue – Everyone sees the same background of your medical history. I think many of us could agree that that seems like a, a, a benefit to move our healthcare system forward. However, who did I just say is involved in this and where is their background as a company? So this merger to create one of the biggest databases between AT&T and Equifax, Equifax is essentially right an information company. And uh, Facebook's an information company. Comcast is an information company. Everything's kind of an information company. And there was an interesting um, conversation of AI ethics, artificial intelligence ethics uh, happening at Google and Microsoft and others in a consortium to say, if we're creating algorithms that are using and sharing all this information to create profiles, are we not just simply making a more efficient, oppressive system if we inherently train AI with our own inherent biases? And what does that mean for the future, Right. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave that there and I'll put a bookmark there and let you, you guys chime in and say, given the history we talked about, let's look at to the, into the future. You know, what does the future of these conversations lead to and what should people know? You know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're like, man, this is all complex, man. I'm just, I'm just a person here living, working, trying to get by. And, um, you know, what does this mean for me? When you all think about how we engage with apps, social media, and, and maybe people aren't aware of it. You know, do you say that might be the next phase of credit reporting that, again, and maybe already is that we're just not aware of? Are these social media platforms sharing information with? And I would guess it I, without even knowing the answer to that. I wouldn't be shocked if they are, but we'll get some more information on that. But what do you all think yeah. about, well, what does that mean for us in the future and how should people be thinking? As this pertains to their future. So, I mean, one of the important things, there's a couple, there's so many important things in what you just, what you just laid out. One is that, um, you know, there, there are these three major companies and, and if listeners have gone on and gotten their credit scores from the three companies, they might notice that they're different from each of the three mm-hmm. companies. Um, and the reason is, uh, I mean, you gave some stats about sort of the rough percentages that your credit score is based on. 
But all of the companies have their proprietary calculations and algorithms for calculating your actual score. And proprietary means we can't actually see the math that goes into it. So if my Equifax score goes down by 20 points and I can't think of anything that I did differently, there's no, I have no recourse to actually find what they use to say that I'm 20 points like less credit worthy. Um, now, I mean, it's, it's funny that we brought up Equifax, which is the largest and uh, also was, was a company that folks might remember had this huge data breach where yeah. um, basically all of their information and they have information on more people than are people in this country. Basically, they have like over 800 million credit reports and that information was leaked. And for me, like that, that's that. And <laughs> one of the funny things about it was they leaked the information and then they started selling a product that like if you were part of the like information that was leaked, pay us $50 and we'll help you like fix it. It's like, pay you $50. I just leaked my information. Hey, that's a, um, hey, that's capitalism. Right. Exactly. That's, that sounds like a good business plan. If you know, Hey, mess it up, but, but I can charge right, yeah, right you to fix it. Yeah. yeah. I can fix it. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, like th- this is why this is a, a democracy issue for me because I think you're right. Like it's, you know, it's like information can be really, really useful. And like, it's, it's helpful to, like you were saying, like if I move to a new city or I'm driving through somewhere and I have to go to the, the doctor, like, Oh, it would be great if my doctor could just like immediately access all of my medical history or like who my like closest contacts are or something terrible, like all that stuff would, would really be great. But is it great when a for-profit company that has absolutely no accountability to me does that. So they could use that for like governmental good, or they could sell it all to Amazon to advertise me like particular things, or they could sell it to uh, another financial institution so that they could target me for particular predatory uh, financial instruments when we don't have a say in how that data is used, um, then it becomes a huge, huge problem. And that's, that is really the structural problem with these for-profit financial institutions doing all of our credit reporting. Yeah. And a couple of, so one is around one response I have, and I think Maurice a great deal in our kind of interactions for kind of opening my eyes to the issue is this this merger of AT&T and, and Equifax, because what we're talking about is a level of corporate concentration in which you have companies that are trying, and, and Maurice Mo references, of having the information, but then also selling you products based upon the collection of that information. So so AT&T is now in a position to basically, if that happens, segment people into particular type of, say, phone plans or types right. of phones yeah. or based upon them owning the, the credit, your credit profile. Yeah. Like, that's the type of thing. And this is the stuff that Amazon does, right? Like, yeah. Amazon yeah. pigeonholes you into, into particular types of uh, products where you may want two products. And one Amazon sells and one a small black business um, in your community sells. They're going to push you to buy their product at the expense of that. So this is what's happening in corporate America. And, and we have to be aware of how our information is being used 
to really build, make these companies larger and then push, you know, really, you know, businesses that I think we would want to support out of the market and then actually being used to harm us. The other thing that I want to mention is you mentioned the, the importance of information. I mean, these companies are selling something and profiting on something that doesn't belong to them. This is our information. Like we own it, right? Like my search history, I I should own that. You know, my financial records, I should own that. My health records, I should be the owner of it, which means I should be the one benefiting from its use in the economy. And there is no structure that allows for that right now. And the government has been completely asleep at the wheel in in this so basically equifax transunion experian they are their entire profit model is around selling our information that should belong to us and we should be able to verify whether the information that they're selling is even accurate and correct and what we've seen is that they're not very good and, to, and making sure that the information that they're selling about us is accurate or correct. So yeah, yeah, those are those are kind of my two responses to. This. I mean, it, it makes the the data leak even more ridiculous because you like you know you get an email from Equifax saying, "Oh, I lost all your data," and you're like, "Who are you? I never right. gave you anything. Right. What are you talking about? How did you get right. my?" Yeah, they were, yeah. Tell you to do anything. Yeah, yeah. People got that email and was like, "What the hell is this?" Like, yeah. <laughs> in the business with this company. Like, at least when like Wells Fargo emails you, you're like, "No bank with Wells Fargo." Okay, it makes sense. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, and you also brought up a really good point about this whole concept of it's it's our data, it's our information, and why why do they get the profit from it, and, and we're the ones that are the owners and purveyors of it. And other countries around the world seem to have gotten in front of this a little bit better than our country. And I, I have two questions I'll pose. One, I'm going to make a comment, and then that'll be a question. One, I I see a, a lane for technology in this, and I'll say that because you know, Jeremy, you said you know, there's no there's no solution to this. I actually was just on the phone last week. You know, my personal life, as some of you know, who follow the podcast, um, I am a venture capitalist, which many of you might find ironic in some ways. Um, but it's not to me uh, if you study a little bit more about what what we're doing and what our mission is. But uh, in it, I was talking to actually an African-American female tech founder who just started a company in the last year to help consumers monetize their data, what gets shared and what happens. So this is something that corporates already monetize with each other. And I, I'll. I'll actually ask you two questions. The first question would be to you both. Do you see us using our own creativity, our own political voice and our own innovation to disrupt a almost 200 year old industry that we may not agree with the foundations of? Mm -hmm. Do you see there being a lane where that could disrupt this whole thing that's been built? And create a new way for consumers and people to to create a new lane for themselves in this credit conversation and how information is used. That's the first question. Second question I have is, you mentioned it. This is a, a democratic issue. And we have a lot of different listeners from all different backgrounds and all different viewpoints. And, you know, do you see any political party per se or anything that really demonstrates to us that at this time, 
How does our government see this conversation in general? And is there really any uh, voice coming from anywhere where this seems to be as important as it sounds like it is to you all in this conversation? So those are the two yeah. uh, points that I would just like to ask and throw out there. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at that. Um, you know, um, the idea of people monetizing their information and benefiting from the use of their information economy, I think has to be built on the on a foundation of there has to be strong and strict regulatory authority by the government to ensure that it will not be misused by the marketplace. Because I, I am of the strong belief, and, and I think the track record backs me up, that if left to their own devices, profit will always drive, return on inv- shareholder investment will always drive, and, and po- human pain will not be considered. So I think there has to be someone who's responsible for ensuring that consumers are taken care of, that those who are interacting with these agencies are taken care of. And I think we're we're not at all close to that yet, but we have some foundation to build on. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which currently has regulatory authority over the um, the credit reporting agencies and o- over the financial markets and the big banks, are a place to start. So I think we can look at what are the regulatory authority that they currently have? Are there certain new regulatory authority they should be provided as tech enters into the ecosystem? And then, but really to bolster that agency to play a core role. The other thing to your second part of your question around political acumen, I'll say um, one thing that I have been intrigued by in Joe Biden's plan is the idea of a publicly a federal credit bureau that is responsible for a lot of the things that the current credit bureaus are doing. Um, what intrigues me about that is I don't, I'd like to, to have a conversation about what would a credit reporting agency look like that isn't driven by profit, that is actually driven by meeting right. the, the credit needs of people who are in the marketplace. And that's yeah. something that's, that's intriguing to me. Now, could that be done very badly? Yes, it could. Be careful what you ask for. Yeah, right, right. Be careful what you ask for. Okay. Right. But as a but as an alternative to what we have, I think it's it's worth an exploratory conversation. Yeah, I think that this is like this is the the double edged sword that we run into where like the government has done so much harm, financial harm to our people. And there is a, a, a role for government, like government. I, I'm, I'm not like an anti-government person. Like it's really, I actually don't want to be like sorting through everyone's credit worthiness, like in an Occupy style meeting where we're all voting to get, like, I don't want that, right? Like there's a role for government agencies. So like, yeah, the CFPB, I think is a, is a, is a great example. And one of the things we have to push for is like making sure that, um, that we, you know, the government is there to regulate whoever these, these entities are, whether they're government entities or, mm-hmm. or private entities. And then we have to do, you know, our civic duty of making sure that we're having the people in government who are willing to do that. So you asked about political parties now, um, you know, it's, 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 it's few and far between, I would say, for, for politicians to really be strong on this particular issue 
However, like I think that there's a growing group of people who are, are willing to take it on. So um, just recently, actually, the, the House Antitrust Committee, which is all about, um, you know, monopolies that exist that basically has been quiet for the last 20 years, let's say. Like you, I think the la- what's the last major monopoly you've heard of being broken up? People probably would say the Bell Telephone Companies, right? Like, <laughs> like when I was three. Um, so like, uh, but they just released a report about, um, you know, all these huge tech companies and the way that they are using their size to gobble up other industries and how that's actually really, really bad for both democracy and individuals. So that those little kernels like that, like are, are, you know, sort of windows into like what could be if we had like a really strong government that's willing to hold, hold folks accountable. Adrian, one, one thing I, I think that it's really important that you can't understate is the role of money in politics in all of this. The credit bureaus are a huge lobby. The financial industry is a huge lobby. I'll tell you, as being in the wars, trying to protect the CFPB, um, there are as many Democrats that you're fighting with as there are Republicans. I'll tell you, I've been in, uh, and I'll, I'll call them out by name, I've been in the room like Say Gregory Meeks, what Gregory are Meeks? you doing? Oh my God. <laughs> what are you doing? So, like, it is what we want that smoke. We want that smoke. It is the money and <laughs> politics cannot be removed from this. So, when you're talking yeah. about solutions, yeah. we have to consider talk about you know the, the the our democracy and the type of money that's going into lobbying for the system that we have. I got you, and that I mean that's a really good point and and maybe a good tie into as we as we uh get into things and wrap things up here is is ultimately you know as an american as someone uh, a citizen of the society regardless of political belief regardless of ideology on various topics it sounds like this is something where if you say hey democracy that's something we can both agree on no matter side of the aisle or whatever else and if democracy is something that we hold as an American ideal, both major political parties today have their faults in this conversation. Neither one may be highly motivated to today have the best interest of this conversation for the American people. And if we work together on those things and make it a focal point, that is something that ultimately, in theory, should be able to unite all people, because all people who believe in democracy should view this as a core democratic issue, not a, necessarily a political ideology at its core. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's there's um, there's a there's a group of people who uh, believe in uh, the sort of my, my little brother calls it just the vibes of democracy, right? Like you get you, you kind of believe in the vibe, of it, like you got the flag and everything, but like do you really want all these people to like have a say in everything? Like, no. And uh, on Twitter the other day, this, this uh, Senator from Utah, Mike Lee actually came out and tweeted, democracy is not our goal. And this is a U a sitting U S Senator saying democracy is not the goal, you know, like, so like sometimes they tip their hand to it, but I think <laughs> to get there I, on the other end, you know, from this house antitrust committee, there were several Republicans that joined Democrats and saying like, Hey, you know, like this is, this is not democratic. Like what these companies are doing, like we can't actually have a functioning society if we allow companies like this. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it can be a uniting thing, but I think that we, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, do we unite it in a way that's race blind? That's one question. And then the other task is like, there's a lot of people that need to be weeded, weeded out before we start to take on the task of, of uniting. Like, I think a lot of folks are just not going to get there. A lot of those folks are in the Republican party and a lot of those folks are in the democratic party as well. This scene, this may sound counterintuitive, but I think it's absolutely essential. And I think it's only counterintuitive because of the way that we've dealt with the conversation about race in this country. I think if we, we have to approach this with a race conscious understanding of the way that this system is oppressing people of color and oppressing low income and, and, and a lot of, um, you know, underserved white folks as well. But the way that we have to have the conversations to be open about that, because if we are silent and neutral about it, racism is used as a tool to divide those two parties over and over and over. And it's done throughout our history, all the way back to when they decided that indentured servants were going to get to get to continue and the, and black folks were going to be slaves forever and this is the this is the these are the things that happened so i think that we have to lean into this conversation about race um and not stay silent about it or i think they're we're going to see the same thing play over they're going to say like well this is really around those um you know those black folks who really you know you know, they don't take care of their money. You know, they, 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 you know, they buy things that they don't need. And we, it gets into that conversation that creates deserving and undeserving. And then once we're there, they get to just continue to do what they've been doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I'll, and I'll add this to that point too, uh, Jeremy and Maurice, uh, race as a social construct, meaning that it, it didn't always exist. It was made up. And there's another podcast episode we have on when, when the race as we know it today actually came to be, which actually has a set date. Uh, in the 1400s uh, as a definable thing. So as a social construct that constantly moves, even in this country, right? I'll, I will just throw it out there today that in that conversation, to your point you just made, Jeremy, that it does affect certain populations more. I want everyone and our listeners to remember that in the moving social construct of the definition of race in this country, there were groups of people today defined as white who were not always defined as full white land holding citizens. And they were at one point would have been under this construct. Like I said, the quote that I gave to start the history of it, the prudence in large transactions with all Jews should be used. Jewish people, Irish immigrants, Eastern Europeans who can now be defined and under the guise of defined as white weren't always such and are also all affected. And we'll leave with a poem to wrap things up here. Uh, It's a poem from a German Protestant clergyman named Martin Niemöller, who actually found himself in a German concentration camp. Uh, 1944 during the Holocaust. Uh, For any of you who might have ever been to a Seder, which is a uh, Jewish feast marking the Passover holiday, this poem is actually recited um, during many of them and is a representation of fighting for things that are right, uh, no matter what group you associate yourself with. Uh, In a similar vein, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is famously quoted as saying, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. This poem by Martin E. Muller uh, goes as the following. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Pretty powerful words there uh, to end things 
uh, in this conversation. It's been a wonderful conversation with you both. Uh, I look forward to many more. Uh, thanks again for your time. And I encourage everyone to keep learning, searching, and exploring. Till next time.